here in Dundee. Um, we had a lovely journey up from Edinburgh through a monsoon, but uh, glad to make it. Uh, we're going to, in a moment, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, um, but before we do that, let's pray together. Let's pray. God, our Father, as we open your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that he would enable us to see uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that all that we do and all that we say would be for your glory. Amen. I came across an old paperback book in a secondhand bookshop fairly recently. It was first published in 1952 and it had cost two and six. The writer was a man called J.B. Phillips and the title was Your God is too small. Phillips understood that as human beings, our inclination is always to shrink God down to a size that we are comfortable with, and that the result of that is always disastrous for the church and for its message. He wrote his little book because he wanted his readers to catch a glimpse of the true God and to meet him for themselves. Almost 70 years later, uh, the message of his book is still uh, relevant. Your God is too small. How important it is, I think, for us to rediscover a sense of God's greatness and majesty and holiness. Because without it, our Christian distinctiveness will be lost. Today, small views of God abound. In David Wells' words, a light and weightless God creates a light and weightless church. Our God has become too small. I don't know if anyone ever told Isaiah Ben Amos that his God was too small, but if they did, then that error was soon remedied by this extraordinary experience that we read of here in Isaiah chapter 6. Because in this passage, we discover Isaiah's view of God being dramatically expanded. Sometimes there are experiences in life that shake us and bring us to an end of ourselves. Perhaps it's an accident, or maybe it's the loss of someone close to us. Maybe it's the results of a biopsy, a medical examination that just seems to change everything. The things that formerly seemed so important become utterly inconsequential. We are suddenly reminded of the transience of this world, and our whole perspective is altered. And it seems to me that something of this magnitude that happens to Isaiah in this vision. Here is an encounter with a living God that would shape and mold the rest of his life and ministry, a transformational experience as Isaiah comes to feel the weight of God's holiness pressed down upon him. From this point on, his God would never again be too small. So let's look at what happens to Isaiah here 
under three headings. The first thing we're going to look at is at what Isaiah saw. This is a vision. What did he see? And we're, that's outlined for us, I think, in the first four verses. The context is sketched, indeed, in the first few lines. In the year that King Uzziah died. As King Uzziah enjoyed a long, distinguished reign over 50 years, his time on the throne, however, ended badly. In his uh, later years, he fell into the sin of pride, and as a judgment became leprous. His death signaled the end, really, of an era. And on that fateful day, as Isaiah entered through the doors of the temple, we discover that he was confronted, in a sense, not with the empty throne of an earthly king, but instead with the very throne of the one who is the king of kings. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Those verses reverberate, don't they, with a, a sense of God's kingly majesty. As in the book of Revelation, the throne of God is a visual symbol of God's sovereign power and majesty. And Isaiah sees the Lord exalted upon his throne. And he's being taught an important and timely lesson. He's being reminded that though the throne of David may be empty, the throne of heaven is still occupied. He's been reminded that here is one king who will never die. Here is one king who will never abdicate. Here is one king who can never be toppled. The world around may be in chaos and turmoil, idolatry and unbelief abounding. Exile may be looming. Foreign forces may be readying themselves to invade the land. But still, the Lord is on his throne. And if we're here this morning and we are fearful about what is happening in our world, dismayed at the idolatry and unbelief that seems so prevalent today, if we feel that even our own lives are in crisis or, or in danger of collapse, or if we're uncertain about the future of our church, then we need to take heart, for there is still a king on the throne of heaven who is working out all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We, seems we live in a day and age when many, even in the church, are tempted to seek after political power and influence, where many put their trust in human wisdom and ability. In some parts of the world, prominent church leaders ally themselves to political leaders as if that's where the real power lies, as if that's what really matters. A long time ago, John F. Kennedy was asked why he wanted to be in the White House. He said, this is where the power is. He could not have been more mistaken because the power does not reside in Washington or Moscow or Beijing or London or Brussels. The power does not rest in the hands of media moguls and faceless multinationals. The power lies with him who is seated upon the throne, high and exalted. And we dare not forget that in the days in which we live. But if the primary impact of Isaiah's vision was to underline God's sovereign authority 
Uh, The second was to emphasize, you'll notice, his holiness and his glory. Above him stood the seraphs, the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The word seraphim literally means burning or fiery ones, fiery angelic beings ministering in the very presence of God, sinless beings of perpetual activity. And yet such is the awesome purity and glory of God that even they have to cover themselves and hide their faces in his presence. And their song is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The signature tune of heaven, holy, holy, holy. The threefold repetition, stressing the absolute nature of God's moral purity. A God of transcendent moral majesty. And so the seraphim do not sing of God's power or even of his love or his grace. They sing of his holiness. Because at the root of that word holy is the idea of cutting or making separate or distinct. It refers to everything that makes God distinctive and different from us. All that sets him apart from us. All that sets him above us. All that sets him against us. It's a reference to the otherness of God. And this is what confronts Isaiah in his vision. He's given to see the king of kings in all his righteous and fiery splendor. Of course, such a view of God has almost completely disappeared in our present age. Much modern theology has been evacuated of any sense of the holiness and the majesty of God. For so many, God has become, in the words of the late John Peel, a Cliff Richard type of God who lets you beat him at table tennis. But we lose sight of the holiness and glory of God at our peril. Because when that happens, it's not long before the gospel itself is reduced to good advice. Sin is trivialized. Ethics and morality replaced by expediency and pragmatism. Worship becomes entertainment. The message of the cross, the central message of the Christian gospel becomes utterly incomprehensible. And such is the power of God's unapproachable purity that the very doorposts and thresholds of the temple begin to shake. And Isaiah is engulfed and overwhelmed by the sense of God's transcendent holiness and glory. Of course, it wasn't only the doors that were shaking in God's presence. So we discover was Isaiah. I don't know if any of you here have experienced uh, an earthquake. I haven't, I'm glad to say. I have relatives in New Zealand who have, and a terrifying experience. I couldn't think of any experience I've had that was even like it. The nearest I could come to was uh, attending uh, heavy metal concerts um, in the Apollo Theatre in Glasgow in the early 1980s. Um, 
and the wall of sound that was being blaring out from the speakers and everybody jumping around and making, you know, a lot of noise. Um, I never had the long hair, I'm pleased to say, but, or the air guitar, but, um, and in the balcony there in the Apollo Theater, you could feel the whole thing shaking. You, you, it was, it was actually terrifying. You know, not just the noise was terrifying, but the whole thing was the shaking. And you thought, well, this, this, could, this could go at any moment. Uh, well, it's not a very good analogy, but the presence of the Holy One, the Lord of hosts, utterly shakes Isaiah to the core. And that really brings me to the second thing here. Not just what he saw, but what Isaiah experienced. Now, given all that he had seen, we, we might have expected his first words to be, wow. But significantly, we discover that they are, in fact, woe. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As one writer puts it, this gigantic vision doesn't, doesn't just blow his mind, it embarrasses his conscience. And he experiences what perhaps Christians of a previous generation called conviction of sin. Now, what is that? It is coming to terms with the fact that before a holy God, we are guilty sinners, condemned by the impurity of our own mouths and our own hearts. And when in times past revival has come upon the church of God, this has always been one of its hallmarks. Men and women have come under, and children too, have come under a great sense of their own sinfulness realizing that they sit under the just judgment of a holy God. It's interesting how in the previous chapter to this, Isaiah has pronounced a whole series of woes on just about everyone. Woe to the materialist, chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to the drunkards, chapter 5, verse 11. Woe to the evildoers, chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to the immoral, chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to the arrogant and the proud, chapter 5, 21. Woe to the morally corrupt, chapter 5, 22. But now you see, before the holiness of God, Isaiah cries, woe to me. I am ruined. I am found out. I am undone. I, I like uh, watching old films. Uh, some of you here may remember um, the old 1939 film, of uh, Victor Hugo's novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It starred Charles Lawton. Um, he should have won an Oscar, but it was the same year, I think, as Gone with the Wind, and he didn't. And anyway, there's a, in this film, and it's a great film, it, there's a depiction of the scene where Quasimodo uh, rescues the beautiful gypsy girl, Esmeralda, played by Maureen O'Hara, uh, and he sweeps down, he captures her, and he takes her up to the bell tower of the top of the cathedral. And there he puts her down, and as he does that, he, he staggers back from her. He retreats from her. And she asks him, she says, what's wrong? And he says this, it's horrible. I hadn't realized until now 
just how ugly I am. It's because you're so beautiful. I never knew how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you were. And that not that Isaiah here? He's suddenly confronted with the ugliness of his own sinful heart. I never knew how sinful I was until I saw how holy you are. John Calvin wrote, Holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. So when the light shines in that we see just how dusty and dirty the room really is. And this is true of every authentic encounter with the living God. Far too many of us have little or no sense of this, that we are men and women of unclean lips and that we are a people of unclean hearts. Look closely enough at any human heart and you will discover that it is misshapen and twisted. You know, you look at the piece of metal that's nice and shiny and from a distance it looks, it looks incredible, looks beautiful. Then you get closer and you begin to see the defects, the impurities. You put it under the microscope and you see the flaws. And from a distance, we can all look very good to one another. But put our lives and our hearts and our motives under the microscope and what do you find? You find something that is ugly and often far from good. I remember being in Thailand some years ago as part of a mission trip We spent some nights in in Bangkok uh, visiting with missionary friends, one of whom was working with a project among sex workers there called Rehab Ministries. And walking through the night market and being surrounded by all manner of shameless wickedness was a profoundly disturbing and unsettling experience. Indeed, these very words of Isaiah came to my mind. I am a man of unclean lips mind and heart, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, mind and heart. You you just felt dirty. And friends, this is the kind of world we're fast becoming, awash in pornography and sexual idolatry of one kind or another. This is the, the brave new world we're creating in the West. I wonder which one of us can claim a clean mind and a clean heart. This was Isaiah before the Lord. He felt dirty, stained, unclean. But thankfully, that is not the end of his experience, you'll notice. For this conviction of his sin, this overwhelming sense of moral defilement gives way then to a gracious experience of God's forgiveness. One of the seraphim flew to me, uh, verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And that touch brings relief and peace to his conscience. God, in his grace, comes near 
to remove his guilt. The altar, of course, the place of sacrifice, the live coal uh, lifted from it, pictures the application of that sacrifice, atonement, forgiveness, cleansing. Here is the gospel. God has himself provided a way for Isaiah to stand in his presence. Here is the answer to the danger and defilement that Isaiah sensed. And the good news for us this morning is that what the Lord did for Isaiah, he has also done for us. As the writer to the Hebrews assures us, we have an altar, a place where a sacrifice was offered for us and where one was punished in our stead. The cross of Calvary is where our guilt is taken away, where our sin is covered. And so the cross of Christ stands at the very heart and center of the Christian message. Because here is where the guilty, guilty sinners like us find forgiveness. Here is where those with dirty minds and dirty lips and dirty hearts can be made clean. Only here, only at the cross. Here there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Not some, not a few, but praise God, all their guilty stains. So this morning perhaps Inside, you know yourself to be unclean. And come to Jesus Christ. Come to the cross. It's the very place where your sin can be atoned for and your guilt taken away. That is the old hymn put it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, that's why the cross lies at the heart of our worship, and it lies at the very heart of the message that we preach and proclaim. It's only through Jesus, it's only through the cross that sinful men and women can draw near to the Holy One of Israel, the living and eternal God. Here is the only fountain that can make you clean. So never forget that the God who uncovers our sin is the same God who brings us cleansing. I wonder if we know anything of this experience of Isaiah. Conviction, forgiveness, cleansing. If you don't, then perhaps your God is too small. What Isaiah saw, and then what he experienced as a result of that, and then thirdly here and finally, what Isaiah heard, it falls at the end of uh, the chapter from verses 8 and following And the result of Isaiah's cleansing experience is immediate. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? And it seems that this act of atonement provides both a qualification and motivation for Isaiah's future service. And when the call goes out, he puts his hand up. He volunteers. 
He's caught up in gratitude for all that God has done for him. He says, here am I, send me. And it's this overwhelming sense of the grace and the mercy of God that propels Isaiah into grateful and willing service. God's grace produces willing volunteers. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I wonder what we say. What about us? What's our response? If we know something in our own lives of God's pardoning grace, when the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? What do, what do we say? What do you say? Here am I. Get somebody else. Here am I. Send him. Or here am I. You know, send her. Or do we say, here am I, ready to serve, ready to take your gospel to my neighbors and my friends and my family? Here am I, ready to pray, ready to care, ready to teach, ready to encourage? Here am I, send me. Now, Isaiah receives his divine commission. And I think to our ears, perhaps a strange and puzzling message that he's given to proclaim. Go say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's, now that is a hard message. And what are we to make of it? Well, I think lying behind the words here is this whole idea of idolatry. Israel had given herself over to dumb idols. Now she was going to become like the very object she'd been worshiping. She was going to be made like her idols, insensitive, deaf, and blind. In other words, I think what we have here is a kind of Romans 1 type of judgment. God is giving them up to their own folly. He is punishing them by means of their own sin. And the principle is this. You will become what you behold. You will become what you worship, either for ruin or restoration. You will start to resemble those things that you give your heart to. It's not just that we become like the people we're with. We become like the things we worship. We are shaped by that to which we give our hearts and our devotion. In one of his books, Tim Keller uh, quotes the words of the writer, uh, postmodern novelist, the late David Foster Wallace, who uh, said in a speech given to a graduating class at Kenyon College. He said these words, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Whatever you worship, if it's not the living God, it will ultimately destroy you and eat you alive. In in Isaiah's day, the injustice and the materialism and the immorality, you see, flowed out of her worship of these idols. 
And friends, it's no different today. Seismic changes in social attitudes and behavior that we've seen in past years are down to the idols that have been raised up, exalted in our culture. Idols of personal autonomy or political power or sexual freedom or financial comfort or physical beauty. And you see, if we're going to see any kind of moral change within our society, it will not take place through new legislation. It will only happen when people change who and what they are worshiping. It only happens as people come to know the Lord. And that's why the preaching and the proclamation of the Christian message is so absolutely vital in these days. But of course, Israel here would stubbornly refuse to do that. And so Isaiah's mission was to be a thankless one. There's not going to be a revival, he's told. No obvious signs of success. No restoration. No repentance. Judgment and disgrace would follow. As a reminder, I think that ministry and mission are not always what we hope for or what we expect. I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is desolate, the Lord removes people far away, the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. How long will all of this go on for? How long will Israel endure this punishment? How long will they remain spiritually dead and lifeless? There will be physical devastation on the land. It's an outward reflection, really, of their inward spiritual desolation. The land will be emptied and many carried off into exile. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Though a remnant will survive, they too will endure judgment. It's really not a very promising or uplifting picture. And yet, perhaps the one note of hope are in the words here, holy seed. There is hope in the stump, in the holy seed, for a shoot will emerge from the stump. Later on in Isaiah 11, we read these words, they shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, that wouldn't happen for some 700 years because that seed is Christ. He is the true Israel of God. And it's only in Jesus Christ that sinners are cleansed and made fit for God's presence. And it's only through the gospel that men and women are turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And so, friends, if we're going to persevere for God, if we're going to serve God faithfully in this generation, if we're going to be his witnesses, then we have to resist every attempt to shrink God down to comfortable, manageable proportions. Yes, we live in a culture that's hostile to biblical faith. Yes, we live in a, a world that has little time for Christians or Christianity. Yes, we live in a world that's awash with idols of one kind or another. And yes, we live amidst a generation that has, in many ways, rejected God. 
Yet even so, just like Isaiah, we are called to speak and to serve this living God. It won't be easy. We may not even be successful. But the question is, will we be faithful? Like Isaiah, that all begins when we meet God for ourselves. When we see God as he really is. Sovereign majesty and holiness. The God before the the very angels in heaven hide their faces. It begins when we discover our own need of forgiveness and cleansing and experience it for ourselves through faith in a crucified Savior. It begins as we put our hands up and respond to God's call to service with joyful, willing, and obedient hearts. So by God's grace, may Isaiah's experience be ours and our God never again too small let's pray almighty God help us to fix our eyes upon you to see you as you really are Lord help us to come before you confessing our sins looking to Jesus Christ, our great Savior and King, who alone can cleanse us and forgive us. And Lord, as by your grace we come to know your forgiveness and your pardon, Lord, help us to serve you, even though it's hard and even though it's difficult. Help us to be faithful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.